Well, I have a story, too, about when I was a kid. It's not exactly about eating mud, but I remember when I was about 10 years old, I had a conversation that I still remember with my uncle, who was a Southern Baptist minister. It's a little bit kind of like Hosea Ballou's story. At that time, I was living with my uncle's family, and so every Sunday, my brother and I would go to the church with our Baptist family, and afterwards, my uncle and I would often discuss the sermon. I don't remember too much about these discussions, but I do remember one particular discussion that we had about whether the Buddhists are going to hell. That was the topic. Are the Buddhists going to hell? If there are any Buddhists here, I just want you to know I stuck up for you. (laughs) I did. I didn't even really know what a Buddhist was, actually. I had very little idea, except maybe seeing pictures of people in robes or something like that. And I don't think I had ever met a Buddhist, but this question was very real for me. Are the Buddhists going to go to hell? The underlying issue of this question is really whether hell, as traditionally conceived, is fair. Is it just? Is it moral? Is it something that makes sense? Is there really a place where maybe some huge number of souls will spend eternity in a state of torment while others spend eternity in a state of bliss? That was the version, by the way, that my uncle had. And there are other versions, too. I'm going to talk about a a couple of them in a minute. But that was the version we were talking about on that day when I was 10 years old. This is a serious line of questioning. And of course, I was not the first one to ever raise these questions. A lot of people have raised these questions, but at that time, I didn't realize that anybody else had. I just knew that I was concerned. And so we talked about it. My uncle, who passed away several years ago, made a valiant attempt to answer my question. He really did. And he used what I now recognize as one of the more popular modes of escape by saying something like, We have to trust God to figure that out. That that was his best shot. And you know what? He did his best. He was a sincere person. And I, I respect his life. But that was his best answer. And it did not satisfy me. It just didn't satisfy me. It's like saying, well, I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer to that question. So I was not satisfied with that answer, and to be quite honest with you, I have been thinking about it ever since, really. And it's not an accident that I ended up being a minister in a place called the Universalist Unitarian Church. It's not an accident. So I've been thinking about that. Is it real? Who goes there? Who decides who goes there? How is that decision made? What's it like in there? Is it fun? Does anybody ever get out? You know, kind of like escape from Alcatraz. You know, three valiant souls went over the wall of hell last night and they haven't been able to find it. Does anybody get a second chance once they're in there? Do they get a third chance or do they get a fourth chance? Is God fair? Is God compassionate? 
Is God loving? If God's loving, could there be a hell? These are good questions. These are good questions about this old story. And so these questions linger with me, and I think they probably are on other people's minds as well. I know they are. Now, our universalist tradition teaches that a loving God would never send his or her children to a place of torment forever. That's kind of a one-sentence definition of universalism. That a loving God would never send his or her children to a place of torment forever. It just wouldn't make sense for a loving God to do that. Now, that's our tradition. So our universalist tradition maintains that hell as a place of eternal punishment is impossible. That's our theological tradition. By the way, I know lots of great people who come from other theological traditions, so I, I, I respect them, and you know, good people come from every tradition, actually, and from no religious tradition at all, so I want to acknowledge that, but it still doesn't take away my questions to know that. I know that for many Unitarian Universalists, this discussion is not a matter of pressing importance because maybe you grew up a different way where you never were exposed to that idea and I meet people like that and they say, oh, well, I don't know, I never really thought of it. So it's not an issue. Or maybe you resolve that issue in some way at some point in your life and that's a wonderful thing. I congratulate you. But even if you feel that hell doesn't exist or it's irrelevant or something like that, I want to invite you to listen to these arguments because I'm going to argue that it still is influencing your life even if you don't think it exists. And I'll try to explain why I think that's true. So it still has some importance. I will just say for now that myths do have power. Myths do have power. And as a good example of that, I would invite you to consider Santa Claus, who is responsible for billions of dollars pumped into the American economy, so many dollars that the economy would probably collapse without him, without the benefit of existing. He doesn't need to exist, but there are effects, nonetheless. So if you're skeptical about the whole thing, I invite you to hang in there just for a few minutes longer. Uh, and if it's too painful to listen to, just be happy it's not hell, you know? <laughs> It'll be over soon. I actually did something different today. I prepared a handout, and it's in your order of service, and I think we have enough for everyone. Take a look in your order of service and see if you have the handout. It would be pretty funny if I didn't have one, wouldn't it? All right. Somebody bring me a handout. <laughs> we all need a handout once in a while. I could do it by heart, by the way, but it's better this way. So I want to do a little bit of theology with you. Not too much, just a taste. You're gonna, you're be, you could be a theologian for a minute. 
And uh, you may not want to dedicate your whole life to this, but you could dedicate five minutes. So here are three, if you don't have it, I'm going to tell you what's on this page anyway. And I'm also going to tell you that someday we're going to have video screens. And so we're just going to put it up on the video screen. So that might come sooner than you think. So here are three ideas or propositions about help. Here's the first one. God loves everybody and wishes for all people to be saved from hell. God loves everybody and wants everybody to be saved. That's number one. Number two is God is powerful enough and strong enough that if he wants to save someone, he can do it. I'm using he, by the way, intentionally because in this myth, the character is generally thought of as male. That's why I'm using that word. So the second one is if God wants to save somebody, he could do it. He's powerful enough to do that. And the third one is there are some people in hell. Some people do go to hell. Those are the three ideas. Very simple, straightforward little ideas about, about theology. Now the problem is they cannot all be true. The three statements cannot all be true. All right? So how would that work? Well, if... if uh, if God loves everyone and wants everybody to be saved and has the power to do it, then it would follow that everyone would be saved. So number three is wrong. Okay, do you see that? So if God loves everyone and wishes for all people to be saved, but they're not all saved, that would mean one is true and three is true, then it's not true that God has the power to do that. It must not have worked. He wanted to do it, but it didn't work. That means number two is false, that he wasn't able to pull it off. He tried, gave it the good old college try, but it wouldn't work, and some people ended up in hell. And then, if uh, number three is false, that means uh, God loves everyone and he has the power to do it, and nobody goes. That's called universalism. So if one and two are both true, that's universalism. If number one is false, God loves everyone and wishes for all people to be saved, if that one's false, that's called Calvinism. <laughs> Calvinism says that God doesn't want everybody to be saved. There are the elect and the non-elect, and God chooses who's going to be saved and who's going to go to hell, and we, there's nothing you can do about it. Okay? That's called Calvinism. So that's number one, not being true. And then number two, if God doesn't have the power, uh, God would like to save everyone, but he can't do it. Something gets in the way. That's number two is false. We call that Armenianism, and that is a pretty serious theological option in the world, and I want to talk about that for just a minute, okay? Number, uh, the Calvinism option is not popular these days. Most people do not want to think of God as someone who arbitrarily decides that some people will go to hell and some people will be saved. We, that's a harsh vision of God. It really makes God into a mean deity. Really? I, I, that's a... That's a hard one to swallow, that God would intentionally make a decision that some people are going to spend eternity in hell and there's nothing they can do about it, and he just decided. That's all. So Armenianism tends to be 
in contemporary theology where uh, liberal, many liberal Christians and Christians in general believe in Armenianism, which means that something prevents God from saving everybody even though he would like to. So what would prevent God from saving everyone? And the answer is interesting. Most theologians say that what would prevent God from doing it is free will, is free will. So the idea of this would be that God created us with free will. And that characteristic of ours to have free will makes us who we are as human beings. We wouldn't be human beings without that freedom of choice. And so God made us with this free will, but the problem is if we have free will, we might choose to go to hell. Okay? All those who want to get on that train, raise your hand. <laughs> Armenianism says that in some way we might choose not to be saved. There is no story in the Bible, there is no story in the Bible that says that you come up to the pearly gates at the end of your life and there's a greeter there, and the greeter says, welcome to the afterlife, which would you prefer, heaven or hell? That's not the way it would work. And we don't have ev any evidence that, that there's any Bible story or any other story about that. But what it might be is that some people would not choose the way of life that would lead to heaven. So some people might not choose to have Jesus as their savior, and that might result in them not going to heaven and going to hell instead. Or somebody might choose not to belong to the right kind of institutional church, which is required to get into heaven. And so as a result of that, they would not get into heaven and they would go to hell. So in this way of thinking about things, some theologians would say you chose not to go to heaven, you chose to go to hell. Now I have a problem with that analysis of that because um, you know, even if we have free will, uh, I have some real questions about a deity that would allow his or her creatures to make that kind of choice and not interfere. For example, if you were with your child and your child started to run into a burning building, would you say, well, it's important for them to make their own decisions. <laughs> I don't think you would say that, would you? I don't think you would say that. I think you would go grab that child and pull him out. So we could have a world of free will, and yet still it doesn't make, it's almost an entrapment. Now, one of the uh, writers that I read talked about this. Uh, how, so here's the dilemma. How can you have free will and still say that nobody goes to hell? How can you make those two things coexist? That's the theological problem. Because if you have free will, then somebody could choose to go to hell. That's the argument, okay? So how could you do that? Well, one of the writers that I'm acquainted with says you could think of it as a chess game. So just an analogy. So in this chess game, God is like a master chess player, and 
you are like a beginner or an average chess player. So at every point in the game, you are perfectly free to move anywhere you want to move. You can take any, any move that's legal you can make. So your freedom is 100% to do it, make any choice you want at any given moment. But the outcome of the chess game is not in doubt. Because there's a master on the other side. Okay? So that's one way of resolving that problem. Uh, it is hard for me to accept the idea that a deity would create a hell, make very strict restrictions on how, what you have to do to stay out, and then when some people actually play in the mud, say, you're out. You had your choice, and you played in the mud. So now you're gone for eternity. So I think that, see, this is a moral issue about the nature of God, whether God is good or not. Uh, there's an alternative version of this story where even after you're in hell, you still can get out, which I think is a great improvement. <laughs> it's a tremendous improvement. As a matter of fact, many theologians feel that you can get out anytime you want to, but that some people still won't leave. They'll still stay in there. And that's why there's a hell, because some people, even being tortured, would choose to stay in the torture. Um, I read a tiny bit about what torture experts say about this. And what they say is nobody can withstand torture indefinitely, biologically. We're not able to do that. So I think it's a hard argument to say that somebody who's being tortured would choose to be tortured rather than go to the party next door where they're playing these 60s songs <laughs> and having a good time. So, the Universalists were people historically who came to the conclusion that the hell story could not be true. And by the way, I want to tell you that the three positions, the Calvinist, the Armenian, and the Universalists, are all supported by the Bible. All three of them have biblical texts that lend them credence. And so one of the things that theologians and biblical scholars do all day is, they, whichever side they're on, they try to argue that that support is better than the support. But the, none of them... You can't hold any of those three positions without being contradicted by the Bible somewhere. That's the situation. The Universalists came to the conclusion that you couldn't have a loving God and have hell, that those were incompatible. So you can see that if God, if, if it's, if, if God chooses arbitrarily that you're going to hell before you're even born, it's hard to reconcile that with love. But the Universalists would even say that if, even if God lets you make this choice and indeed makes it hard to stay out, that's not loving either. One of the authors I read said, my parents wouldn't let me, do something, wouldn't let me make a choice like that. And surely God is at least as loving as my mom and dad. So these are some of the arguments that go on. Now, I know that not everyone uh, is worried about this or cares 
about this, but I also know that some people in our churches do and people do all over the world. And I know that kids who have gone to our Sunday school have been told by classmates that they are going to hell. That is a fact. So it's not a joke. It's not a joke. And so I feel very good about saying to our kids, you can tell them that in our church we don't believe in hell. We don't believe in eternal torture. Now you're still free if you want to believe that. God bless you. We have freedom of thought. Thank goodness we have freedom of thought. And so in our church, you're free to believe that if you want to. But I want you to know what our theological tradition is and that our theological tradition has said that love has to be that which we live by. We have to live by love. And if we live by love, we cannot possibly, and if we have faith in love, we can't possibly have a worldview that ends up with millions and millions of people being tortured for eternity. By the way, there, there's another argument that says that hell is really not that bad. <laughs> this is the argument that says Hell, you know, hell is a fiery furnace, but it's a dry heat. <laughs> so it's not that bad. And so you might choose to live there. <laughs> you know, there's another, you, uh, there's also a UU story, which if you don't uh, uh, know this, you probably should know this if you're going to be a UU, or even if you're not, and that is that sometimes you you say, well, I would rather go to hell because that's where all the interesting people are. <laughs> but what I want to say to you is that works as a joke, but it doesn't work as theology. It doesn't solve any problems. But it's a good line. So aside from the theology then, I just want to propose one more way of looking at this. And the way I want to propose is that we look at it by asking the question, if we believe in hell or not, how does that affect the way we look at the rest of the world? This is a question that intrigues me greatly. How does that affect the way we look at the rest of the world? Does the world look different depending upon whether we believe in hell or not? Does our choice about this belief change the way we perceive daily reality? I think it does change the way. And I want to just tell you a couple of the ways that I think it does. For example, if we believe that many of our fellow human beings would spend eternity in a place of torture that is apparently sanctioned by God, wouldn't that make, tend to make us think that torture is okay? Especially if God does it, maybe that's okay. You know, in the Inquisition, the, the Inquisition where they tortured people for not having the right beliefs, the theological argument that the Inquisition used is it's better to be tortured for a week or a month or a year in this world 
and not be tortured infinitely in the next world. So we're going to save you from eternal torture by torturing you now. That was the argument of the Inquisition. So I think this kind of way of looking at things has a tendency to make us think that torture is okay. If we believe that lots and lots of people, probably millions and millions and millions are going to hell, wouldn't it change the way we look at other people? Might we not go around thinking, hmm, I wonder who it is. Hmm, I could think of a few people, right? Wouldn't it make us look differently at the rest of the world? And at different times in the history of humanity, uh, we have looked that way at different groups of people. Sometimes the Muslims are rejected. You know, the Muslims are all going to hell. Maybe sometimes it's the LGBTQ people. Those people are probably going to hell. Or maybe it might be the Jews. Or maybe it's the Native Americans. Or maybe it's the African Americans who are going to hell. Or maybe it's those Unitarian Universalists who think they know so much. Maybe they're going to hell. So you see, I think that this way of thinking in a pragmatic way leads to an atmosphere of suspicion and distrust and it makes us suspect those who are different because they're not part of our tradition. And the tradition teaches that if you don't do these things in accordance with the tradition, then you're in danger of going to hell. And so I think it creates a sense of suspicion about others. And by the way, not everybody who believes this, I'm just talking about cultural trends. And by the way, it's in politics too, and, and if you take a look, you will see that. So it tempts us to reject or devalue the other person because they may not be one of the good ones. They might be one of the bad ones. And a rejected group could be anybody. Would we be highly motivated to provide health care for everyone if a lot of them are just going to hell anyway? Would we be highly motivated to want everyone to have the goodness of life if some of them are really just going to hell? Would we have a high motivation to do that? I'm asking um, that question. What I think we might consider is what I would call pragmatic universalism. Now, in pragmatic universalism, you don't have to believe a myth is true about the afterlife. You might think that could be true. You might think it's not true. I'm sure we have people in this church who don't think that that's likely to be true in any literal sense. But I think we could talk about something called pragmatic universalism. And I would mean by that that we would look at others as being worthy of love. Every single one. Everyone. Could we look at the world through those eyes? What if we saw in the face of every person a precious being who is valued and loved by the creative power of the universe, however we might think about that? Someone whose life is meaningful, 
and deserves not to suffer but to enjoy. What if we look through those eyes? What if we completely let go of the practice of religious conversion by means of threats? What if we completely let go of that way of thinking that you should be converted because there's a threat hanging over your head? What kind of shift in perspective would that give to us if we became full-time practitioners of love? Universal, inclusive love. It doesn't mean, by the way, that we let anybody do anything they want to do. It doesn't mean that we don't have police who stop you from robbing the bank. That is, that's not it. It means an approach to everyone. I am a universalist. And I want to tell you that I really became a universalist after I came to this church. Because the church I went to in Chicago called itself Unitarian, and I never really thought about it, actually, to be quite honest. And then when I got here and realized this was a historic universalist church, I started thinking about it more seriously. And as I did, I became a universalist. I, am, I will say that I'm a non-literalistic universalist. I do think that this path of inclusive love is the path we need to be on. Whether we, whatever we might think about afterlife or any of those theological questions. As our friend Bishop Spong argues, the literal truth is never the most profound truth. It's not the literal question, it's the question of what kind of life we're gonna live. How are we gonna orient ourselves to the world and to other people? I think inclusive love is that best path. And if we or someone else chooses a lesser path for a while, then there is some force in the universe. And I'm with Martin Luther King on this who says there is a force in the universe that calls us back toward love. It is calling us to come back to love. And that that voice never stops calling and that we are free at every moment to say yes to that. Every moment. Our universalist tradition speaks that truth, as other traditions do as well. But ours speaks that truth in response to an old and really rather harsh myth, which I believe is fading away from human culture. And it's clear that we can see that. Our tradition says in the words of John Murray, the first universalist in the United States, give them not hell, but hope. Now is the time for us to find our words for this powerful message and then proclaim that message lovingly and clearly to the world.